Welcome to Salem Alliance Church. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org. This week's message is by Steve Fowler. We've been in our series called The Invisible War. We're talking about spiritual warfare, and we're going to continue to do that uh, this morning. Uh, some of you may remember in maybe in high school or college, maybe it was a literature class or maybe it was a history class, uh, the, 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 some of the Greek mythology, uh, specifically Homer's Iliad or Virgil's uh, Aeneid, the, the poem, and, um, and the talk about the Trojan Wars. Um, if you didn't read any of that, maybe, maybe you saw the movie Troy uh, years ago starring Brad Pitt. Uh, maybe that'll strike a memory for you. But uh, the, the story is told of this Greek army that uh, is motivated because of, of Greece's king and they're motivated by some jealousy uh, to attack the city of Troy. In fact, they do attack. They sail across the, the sea there and, and get to, uh, to, 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 to the city of Troy and they lay siege to the city of Troy for, uh, for 10 years. They've surrounded the city, really trying to choke the life out of it. And at year 10, it doesn't seem like they're getting very far in this strategy. And someone comes up with a new strategy. It's a, it's a strategy of deception. Of, hey, let, let's do this. Let's fool the citizens of Troy uh, that we're actually leaving and going back to Greece. We'll burn our tents. We'll, we'll, we'll build this massive horse that will be a gift uh, sort of a gift horse, and, and we'll roll it up to the gates. And inside the, inside the horse will be 40 warriors. And, and the citizens of Troy will, will see that we've left. They'll bring the gift into the city. And, uh, and then what can happen, what can happen is that those, those, those warriors can get out of that horse and they can make their way to the city gates and open the city gates and we can sail back and we can get in this city and destroy it once and for all. That was the strategy, as Homer tells it, and uh, the, so the strategy is employed. The gift horse is, is, is created. The warriors are in, the, 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 in that horse. The, the Greeks burn their tents on a night, and so the, the citizens of Troy are watching the fires. They get up in the morning, and they see the ships sailing back to Greece, and when they crest over the horizon, there is a celebration in the city of Troy. Uh, a, a parade breaks out and this gift horse, this Trojan horse is viewed outside the gate and there's all kinds of joy um, that, that, that the Greeks have left. Yet there is also skepticism that it really, is this really happening? And skepticism is sort of pushed aside and the, this Trojan horse is brought into the city and as the celebration is taking place that evening, that, that horse that is in, this, in the city, the warriors sort of, in a stealthy way, kind of pile out of it and they gain a foothold in the city. They gain this place, this, this piece of territory within the city and a, a skirmish, a battle breaks out. These warriors make their way back and they fling open the city gates. The armies of Greece have sailed back over that horizon and made their way and attacked the city of Greece and they're inside and if you know the story, Troy is ransacked. Troy is decimated and the city ends up falling. Soldiers are killed. Families are are. are, 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 are brought into slavery, and Greece wins the battle. All because access was given. All because there was this, this foothold, this deception, this foothold, this place, this opportunity for, uh, for the Greek armies to get inside Troy was made available through this plan of the, of the Trojan horse. And that whole scenario, that whole battle, actually placed some similarities to the spiritual battle that you and I are in. This invisible war. 
Because what, what the enemy does is he often, he often dresses things up to look like a blessing. He's looking for a place. He's looking for a foothold. He's looking for an opportunity to gain some ground in a person's life and then to live out his mission statement or to pursue his vision statement. And that includes stealing, killing, and destroying. He loves to ransack people's lives. He loves to decimate relationships. He loves to distract people from the things that are important and the things that, are, that should be priorities. And so he pursues a foothold. He pushes up his gift horse, and it looks good, and it's enticing, and it looks beautiful, looks like a blessing, but it's actually a curse. And you kind of you'll get a picture of this early on in the scriptures in the book of Genesis uh, Cain, the brother of Abel, just before he actually kills his brother Abel, uh, God says to him, uh, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. But you must master it. That This desire has been placed before you and this, this temptation to give ground to the evil one has been placed before us. And this is actually how the invisible war actually gets quite intense. Is that the enemy through his, not only just Satan, but also the, the fallen angels that report to him uh, are looking for footholds in people's lives, which I want, you know what, here's kind of the main point of the message, that we need to aggressively pursue a foothold-free life. We need to aggressively pursue a foothold-free life. We need to have discernment. We need to know that we're saying yes to the things we should say yes to and no to the things we should say no to. So we need to pursue this life. And, and this is the part of the series where we start talking about some things that, that perhaps we're not used to talking about, demons and unclean spirits or evil spirits, as often they are called in the scriptures. I mean, usually at dinner time, someone doesn't say, you know, I was thinking about Satan and, and demons today. Let's talk about that. Uh, that's, that's usually not something we talk about, especially in Western culture. In West, we're, we're, we, we live in a, in a, in a culture that's uh, it's dominated by naturalism, that everything has a natural explanation. And so we start talking about the unseen world and unseen spirits. This is something that challenges our thinking. Uh, I did not grow up in a Western culture. I grew up in an Eastern culture. I grew up in China and I went to boarding school in Malaysia. And this, uh, in Eastern culture, this, this conversation is actually, a, this is kind of normal. In fact, the apartment building that we, in which we lived, if you go up to the floor that we lived on and you made your way to your apartment, you'd walk by other apartments that um, out in front of them, there would be maybe a plate. And on that plate, there would be some fruit, like oranges or maybe even a piece of meat, like a piece of chicken. And, and that was there so that if an evil spirit or a demon came to that apartment door and wanted to get access... That, that they would see the food and be distracted or be appeased and then would leave and move on to someone else's uh, apartment that had oranges or, or chicken in front of it. Um, and that was sort of a belief. And that, that early on in my life, I had to confess the sin of eating food sacrificed to idols because those oranges, <laughs> they were good. They were good oranges. Uh, but that, that, that was pretty common. Uh, not the eating the oranges, but you know what I mean. The, the, the food out in front of the apartments. Or there'd be a wood frame, just a small wood frame mirror hanging on the apartment door. And in the, and the cultures I grew up in, what, what that was for was what, if, if an unclean spirit came up to that apartment, they would see themselves in the mirror and be frightened and leave and go someplace else. That was, 
That was just some of the thinking. Now, in some cases, in Eastern cultures, it's a bit of a simplistic thinking. In Western culture, it's, it's this naturalistic thinking. Well, that, that stuff, yeah, that's middle-aged stuff. We don't worry about that stuff anymore. But we, as Christians, as people who have a biblical worldview, we, we need to have an understanding, not so that we can be afraid or we can be terrified, but so that we know how to be equipped to engage in this invisible war. Let's remind ourselves, greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. Satan has been defeated but he's still pushing his gift horse up to the doors of our lives. He's still enticing people to say, this, this looks good. I, you deserve this. You're justified to do this. You, and the blessing is actually a curse because the enemy would love more than anything to ransack, to decimate, and destroy. Now, let's just set up a bit, a bit of a baseline or foundation. Make sure we understand uh, when we talk about fallen angels or demons, what, what, what's going on? Where'd they come from? You know, who are they? Uh, we've talked a little bit about, about Satan and his names and kind of his strategies, but let's just walk through scripture a bit and start in Isaiah chapter 14. Because uh, Isaiah's talking about Lucifer and says, how you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. Satan caused a rebellion in heaven. He had a seat in heaven and he was kicked out because he, was, he wanted, a, a, he wanted a, a higher position. And, um, and actually Jesus talks about his eviction from heaven. He says, Jesus told them, talking to his disciples, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Satan was evicted from heaven and as he tried to, to overthrow uh, the, the, the God. And actually, Revelation chapter 12 gives us a little, even a little bit more detail because John writes, an enormous red dragon, his tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Now, here, here's what I want you to just notice in, in these, these, these verses here is a third of the stars or a third of the angels were cast out and they were his angels. Now, some biblical theologians have theorized, and this is just theory, have theorized that, you know, because we know three names of angels in, in, in the scriptures, we, we know the name Michael, we, we know the name Gabriel, and we know the name Lucifer. Some theologians have, have theorized that maybe because there's three members of the Godhead, that there were three archangels that directly reported to a member of the Godhead. And there was a third of the angelic hosts that were under that particular archangel. So, so maybe Michael, the warrior angel, reports to God the Father. Uh, maybe Gabriel, have you noticed in the scriptures that whenever you see Gabriel, he's delivering a message? Maybe Gabriel is reporting to Holy Spirit. And could it be that Lucifer, this angel of light, actually reported to the light of the world, Jesus? And maybe it was a rebellion against Jesus in, in heaven. We don't know for sure. This is all theory. Maybe that's the, the angle on the rebellion. And so what happens is you have this war in heaven and Satan and his third of angels that he had charge over were booted out of heaven. And maybe he's so, he's so angry at people because a way has been made for humanity to take his place in heaven. 
Maybe, maybe he's so angry at people who follow Christ, he's so motivated by that, by, that, uh, by that loss of position in heaven that that is why he rolls his gift horse and wants to gain access and wants to get a place, an opportunity, or a foothold in people's lives so that he can, in, in his own way, he knows he's defeated, but in his own way, take revenge. Maybe that's what's going on in this invisible war. We don't know. We're playing detective here a little bit, but we know that there's a war. And we know that he wants access into people's lives. And one of the things we need to determine is, so who, who does he attack? Who, who will Satan attack? Who does he want, whose lives does he want to get a foothold in? And in answering that question, what I want to do is just read some, some passages of Scripture so that we can have Scripture speak to us on this very topic. And I want to read from Mark chapter 1, a passage where Jesus is beginning his earthly ministry. And in Mark chapter 1, uh, he's going into a synagogue in Capernaum, and, and Mark writes, Jesus and his companions went to the town of Capernaum. When the Sabbath day came, he went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with a real authority, quite unlike the teachers of religious law. Suddenly, a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit began shouting, why are you interfering with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus cut him short. Be quiet. Come out of the man, he ordered. At that, the evil spirit screamed, threw the man into a convulsion, and then came, up, came out of him. Amazement gripped the audience, and they began to discuss what had happened. What sort of new teaching is this, they asked excitedly. It has such authority, even evil spirits obey his orders. The news about Jesus spread quickly throughout the entire region of Galilee, and I might add, and attendance was up next weekend at the synagogue. Because <laughs> no one's seen anything like this. No one's seen it. What is this? Just a couple observations. Remember, we're asked this question. Who does, who does Satan attack? Who do, the, who do these evil spirits attack? Notice a couple things here. First thing, this is a Jewish man. He's under a covenant. He's, this is God's people. And he's in church. It appears in this story that here we have a man who's under the covenant with God who's at church. And apparently, this evil spirit was comfortable in church. Another story, Luke chapter 13, another observation to make as we seek to answer this question of who does Satan attack. Uh, Luke 13, verse 10, on Sabbath, one Sabbath day as Jesus was teaching in a synagogue, he saw a woman who had been crippled by an evil spirit. She had been bent double for 18 years and was unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, dear woman, you are healed of your sickness. Then he touched her, and instantly she could stand straight. How she praised God. But the leader in charge of the synagogue was indignant that Jesus had healed her on the Sabbath day. There are six days of the week for working, he said to the crowd. Come on those days to be healed, not on the Sabbath. But the Lord replied, you hypocrites, each of you works on the Sabbath day, 
Don't you untie your ox or your donkey from its stall on the Sabbath and lead it out for water? This dear woman, a daughter of Abraham, has been held in bondage by Satan for 18 years. Isn't it right that she be released even on the Sabbath? This shamed his enemies, but all the people rejoiced at the wonderful things he did. First story, we've got a man in the synagogue, a man under the old covenant in the synagogue who is demonized. And I actually prefer the word demonized versus demon possession. Demon possession kind of gives us this picture of, of, of being owned by something or someone. Demon, demonized or demonization actually is this, this, this a foothold has been given, ground has been given, a place has been given, and there's this, this attachment that's taking place, there's this harassment that's taking place. And here we have, in, uh, in, in a synagogue, a man who's experiencing that very thing. But here, in Luke 13, what we have is a woman. And she's in church. And she's bent over, doubled, doubled over, 18 years by an unclean spirit. Now, understand here, we actually have a physical manifestation of demonization. We have someone whose body, who's undergone a, a physical crippling because of an evil spirit. That doesn't mean that every physical crippling is due to an evil spirit, but it's important to, to take note here that for 18 years she suffered this way, but what's even more significant is that Jesus says, this woman is a daughter of Abraham. She too is under the covenant. And, and, and obviously the synagogue ruler, he's, he's upset. He kind of gets out, I kind of picture him pulling out his, his uh, synagogue policy manual. You know, section two, 2.3 says right here, uh, this shouldn't happen on this day. Six days for that, but not, 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 not today. Which, here's what you need to know. Whenever the presence of Jesus is manifested, whenever the presence of Jesus grows stronger and there's a, a tangible sense of his presence, you know the two loudest voices are gonna be? They're gonna be the religious and the demonic. That was the case for Jesus. Everywhere he went, those were the two loudest voices of opposition. And yet here we have a man under the covenant, a woman under the covenant, and, and they are being oppressed by an evil spirit. In fact, if you continue to go in the New Testament, you will see this again and again. You will get... Acts chapter five, verse three, a man named Ananias, his wife Sapphira, um, Barnabas has sold property, given all the proceeds to the church. They wanna look good. The gift horse has been rolled up to their door is that, hey, here's the deal. We, Barnabas got a lot of attention. We can get some attention and we can sell our property, but instead of giving it all, we'll just give some of it and say we gave it all. And Peter confronts him and says, has Ananias, how has Satan so filled your heart? Ananias is a believer. He's part of the early church. Satan has filled his heart. Galatians chapter three, uh, Paul is writing to a church in Galatia and says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has cast a spell on you? In the last couple of weeks, we've actually spent time talking about this necessity of wearing God's armor. And if we're, we're asked to wear armor, it's probably because we're in a battle and the battle is real and we're vulnerable. But if you don't even accept any of those, listen to this. Jesus, in teaching his disciples how to pray, says this to them, pray this, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from the evil one. We're, we're taught 
to pray for deliverance from the evil one and his schemes. Because as Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, 8, he's like a lion on the prowl looking for someone to devour. Which means that for you and I, that the gift horse can be rolled up to our door as well. What looks like a blessing, what looks like something we deserve, This too can be presented to us and what looks like a blessing is actually a curse. And if we give access, what Satan will do is he will harass, he will ransack, he will attempt to destroy the moment that we give him ground. See, I grew up being taught that this is something you don't have to worry about if you're a Christian. Christians can't be demonized. It was was a bit of a logic. Here's the logic. We'll put it up on the screen here so you can kind of see it. Some of you may have been taught this. A Christian is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. That's absolutely true. That's what the scripture teaches. The moment that you become a Christian, God's spirit is inside of you. The dwelling presence of the spirit is in you. The Holy Spirit cannot dwell with an evil spirit. Therefore, a Christian cannot be demonized by an evil spirit. Some of us were taught this. The problem with it, it it seems logical. The problem is, is that nowhere in scripture does it say this. And let's just kind of play with this same logic a little bit. Let's, Let's play it out this way. A Christian is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Yes, that's what the Bible teaches. The Holy Spirit cannot dwell with sin, therefore a Christian cannot sin. How's your week gone? (laughs) I'm not saying, Satan will attack anyone who will give him ground. He will roll up his horse to the front door and he will say, here's something that looks so good. And what appears as a blessing, actually the intent of it is to bring bring absolute destruction. And you'll look at it and say, it looks good. I deserve this. Or in some cases, I'm justified. And the gates open, the gift horse comes in, and the battle becomes quite internal and quite dangerous. Now, we're gonna talk about the subject next week as, as well, and we're gonna talk next week more about the thing, actually some of the things that are done to us that could possibly uh, give the enemy ground in our lives, and there are many of those things. We'll talk about that, and we'll talk practically how to pursue freedom. But today, we're, what we're talking about is just the things actually that we, the ways that we open the doors for the evil one to terrorize and to cause destruction in our lives. And Paul in Ephesians chapter four, just a couple chapters before the, the, the chapter on the armor of God, now Paul is writing some words and he talks, we we're talking about aggressively pursuing a foothold free life. We're talking about not giving any ground to the evil one, not giving him any opportunity to harass or ransack or to enslave. So Paul writes in chapter four, verse 25, he says, so stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth, for we are all parts of the same body. And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. There's that word. There's a foothold, a place, an opportunity, access. If you are a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good hard work and then give generously to others in need. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. 
And do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, he has identified you as his own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Some of you may know what this is. Uh, this is, uh, you ever seen a rock climbing wall? You know, anyone done rock, those rock climbing walls? Okay, some of you have. Th- this, is, uh, this is a handhold, it's not a foothold, but there, if you've ever climbed a rock climbing wall, you know there's this, this just flat face, maybe some, some, some curves in it, uh, in, in this wall, and uh, you can sort of work your way up the wall by using, by using handholds or, or footholds. They're screwed to a wall. Here's a picture uh, of a, a rock climbing gym. And you can sort of make your way up this wall by using each of those footholds or those handholds and, and sort of conquer that cliff or conquer that wall by the use of those footholds and handholds. Here's what Paul's saying. You can give one of these to the enemy. And what he has just done is he's walked us through some of the ways that footholds are established. Uh, he, he begins in, in Ephesians 4 and he, and he talks uh, about the whole idea of telling lies. That when deception, that when we, when, you know, we stretch the truth or maybe we exaggerate what, what, what we're doing is we're giving a foothold. I, I don't think it's just anger in this case. He definitely talks about anger, but he talks about lies. He talks about anger. He talks about stealing. He talks about foul or abusive language. He talks about a lack of generosity. He talks about, uh, about, about grieving Holy Spirit. He talks about bitterness and rage and anger and harsh words and uh, slander and, and uh, all, these, all these potentials for the gates of the city to be opened up and a place and an opportunity a foothold to be established in our lives. And could it be that for some of us, we've got these footholds all over us because it looked good. It looked enticing. It looked right. I mean, I deserve this. I mean, do you know what that person did to me? In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter two, Paul goes even further and talks about another foothold. He's talking about forgiving, forgiving a man in the church who has caused harm. He says, if you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I, and what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. In order, I've forgiven in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. What Paul is saying is unforgiveness. Unforgiveness is a foothold. It's Ground. It's a place, it's an opportunity for the enemy to get a grip. The gates open, an access point for destruction from the inside out. So we must aggressively pursue a foothold-free life. How do you do that? Again, next week, we'll get into, we'll get into this a little bit more next week, and we'll talk practically, especially on these these. Uh, these, these Entry points in where someone actually has done something horrific to us. That's, that's one of the ways that we're demonized, one of the ways that we're oppressed. Uh, we'll talk practically how to process this, but, but today we're talking about 
us being responsible, working out our salvation and not giving ground? How, how do we make sure that doesn't happen? Well, the good news is that because Jesus Christ has gone to the cross, any time that we take the time to reflect and, 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 and our eyes are open to a foothold, that, that th- those footholds can just drop right off through the power of Jesus by the power of the, of the blood of Jesus that he shed on the cross for us. But we begin this process of living a foothold-free life simply by taking time to reflect. What we're doing as we're reflecting is we're asking Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see if we've given any ground to the enemy. Have we opened the doors in any ways? Is there any unforgiveness? Is there any bitterness? This anger that the sun is not supposed to set on, what he's getting to here is, I don't believe he's getting into like a 24-hour time period. I think what he's getting to is that he's getting, don't let, don't let your anger simmer. Don't let it simmer and cook into the point it, it turns into bitterness. And then it begins to send roots down and begins to grow into something bigger than actually you want it to grow into. We reflect, and when we reflect and we listen to what the Spirit is saying to us, then what we do is we move to confession. We say, God, I, I, think, I've, I think I've opened the gates here, and I think because of, you know, at work, and I, I was reading Ephesians 4 about not stealing at work, I, I've, you know, I've been doing some things, and it, it's, it's, been, it's been deception, and I've been kind of fudging the numbers on my expense account, and, and that's kind of popped into my, my thinking here, and I, and I confess that I've been doing that. Now here's the beautiful thing that happens when we confess. 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That cleansing is like this scrub down, this absolute scrub down by Jesus, by his blood, in which then when the scrubbing down is complete, that we, we we're white as snow. Every stain is removed footholds have to fall because of the power of the blood of Jesus. So we reflect, we take the time to think about the ways that maybe we've opened those doors and we provided a place or a foothold or an opportunity for the evil one to cause, cause harm. We confess and then we root to repentance because we're gonna leave that way. We're gonna stop fudging on our expense account. We're gonna stop using that language. We're gonna, we're, gonna, we're gonna stop whatever the Spirit has brought up to our minds. And in the power of the Spirit, we're gonna walk in this new way. We're now going to walk in the light. In fact, that's exactly what Paul gets to in Ephesians chapter five. He says in verse eight, for once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of light. I haven't shared a ton of stories of occasions when I've prayed with people who were being demonized. Um, I, I've, I've done a fair share of that and I don't want to sensationalize a lot of stuff and give unnecessary attention to it. Uh, but there are times when I, th- I think that it'd be helpful to hear um, something that would be instructive for us. And on this topic, I, I, I think it'd be helpful because here we are, Paul saying, live as people as light. Don't live in the darkness. That, that's foothold territory. Live in the light. I was with the team. We were praying for a woman and she was stuck in her, in her spiritual life. And there was certainly some, um, some evil spirits harassing her and there was all kinds of stuff going on. And we were praying with her and we were hitting a wall. We were just getting... Some reason we she wasn't experiencing the freedom that we knew was hers in Christ. 
We knew that this spirit had no, had no right to be there. So we asked the question, what, what right do you have to be here? You, you have to leave in the name of Jesus. And, um, and the, this woman's voice turned to a, a, a male voice and said back to us, she chooses darkness over light. And we had, we had to stop praying and, 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 and she needed to go deal with some things of, of bringing some things that were in the darkness and into the light. Friends, this is real stuff obedience, walking in the light as he is in the light, is actually an offensive weapon in this invisible war. It's freedom. It's what it looks like to live in, obedience. Sometimes we see obedience as this restriction. No, no, it's obedience. Obedience is freedom. It's protection for you. So in this invisible war, what we do is we reflect and we confess and Jesus is so kind. Ephesians chapter one says this, he is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. Every foothold in the name of Jesus must leave when we confess. And every door is shut tightly so that those places the enemy had to harass and to ransack, they are, they are no more. All because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And this morning, we're gonna remember that. We're gonna remember that Jesus went to the cross and purchased our redemption. We're gonna remember that he went to, he, he was hung on a tree and as Galatians chapter three tells us that, that cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree and Jesus took every curse upon himself for us. That's good news. And he took every curse upon himself. We're gonna remember that. And in a few moments, I'm gonna invite the stewards to come forward and we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna celebrate communion. I'm gonna invite you to take bread and dip it in the cup and the bread symbolizing Christ's broken body where he paid your sin debt, your sin penalty. And we're gonna dip it in, in the cup, the, the cup symbolizing the blood of Christ, this, this, this new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. But here's what I wanna I want encourage you to do. As you come, either in the balcony or, or here, or maybe you even do this at home and live stream, as you celebrate communion, I want to invite you to, to today here in, the, in this place, maybe come up to the front here and take some time to reflect. Maybe there's some confession that needs to take place so that you can take communion in a way that's worthy. Hear these words from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as we prepare to remember our Lord's death. Paul writes, for I pass on to you what I receive from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it, and then he broke it into pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this to remember me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes. Anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. Stewards, would you come now? Would you come to the front and friends, when you're ready, after you've taken the time to do some own 
your own examination, your own reflecting and asking Holy Spirit to speak to you about maybe some things you need to make right with God? Would you come and rejoice in the fact that Jesus has set us free? He set us free. He's made it possible for you and I to not only be with him, but to walk in this life empowered by the blood of Jesus, to walk in righteousness. Let's remember him. Salem Alliance Church is a community of Jesus followers located in downtown Salem, Oregon. And we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. If you have a request that we could pray for, please email us at prayers at salemalliance.org. You can view today's entire service online at livestream.com backslash Salem Alliance.